Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, this is uh, Josh. I'm been meaning to call for a while. Uh, Long time listener, first time caller. Uh, I'm in North Carolina right now, and uh, I'd like to be teaching English in China, but things as they are, I'm just kind of playing the waiting game and uh, just trying to take the time to kind of recontextualize how I remember uh, things and going through old sentimental items and old yearbooks, and it just struck me how much. I misremembered some things and let people who weren't very helpful for me uh, kind of shade my whole perspective of middle school in particular. And going through the yearbook and just recognizing I had I had more allies than I realized. And I felt like that message could resonate with some of the fellow tangentialists, <laughs> whatever we call ourselves. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to drop a line, say thanks. Um, and uh, yeah, appreciate what you do. Keep on. Peace. Hey, Chris, this is Ariana. I've wanted to call in for a while because I know more guys usually call in than girls, and it seems like maybe there's a larger number of guys listening to the podcast. Um, But I just want to add to the chorus of female voices and say that, hey, I am a woman and I love your podcast and resonate with what you say. And your podcast and Sex at Dawn have both been super influential in my life. Hey, thank you, Ariana and uh, and Josh. Thank you for that. Ariana was in Oaxaca, Mexico, when she sent that message. Um, it's kind of funny. She, she was like, uh, yeah, I was going to send you a message just saying, I'm a regular person working in the service industry, nothing exotic, but I never got around to it. And now here I am in Oaxaca, Mexico. <laughs> so that was great. Um, hey, this episode is with a guy named Joey Rossitano. Uh, very interesting cat. He, this is another one of the, the episodes I recorded over the summer. I was sitting in a, in a Marriott hotel in Big Sky, Montana. And I recorded, uh, five episodes, I think in two days. Um, just cause of the, you know, it's like get a room, get the Wi-Fi, record a bunch of episodes. Um, but I thought I wasn't going to be able to do any in-person episodes, uh, you know, while I was traveling because of the pandemic and all that, but ended up meeting all these great people. Um, um, uh, Callie uh, Russell, for example, who had been on alone. You probably heard that episode. Uh, the episode I just posted a couple days ago was another one I recorded in person with um, Tim Cahill in Livingston. I did another one with my buddy Whitney. That's coming uh, next, I think, or or very soon. Anyway, point is, I thought I wouldn't have enough recordings, so I rented a room and you know bagged a bunch of them, and then I ended up meeting all these great people and recording on the road. So that's why we're listening to conversations from the summer. And I apologize to you, Joey. And uh, to Mandy, who put me in touch with Joey um, for the long delay in getting these out. It's uh, it's just, you know, one of those things. All right. 
this anyway, Joey, very interesting guy. He lives on an island in Korea and studies Korean shamanism. He's traveled all over the place. He was in Barcelona for a while in Spain. He's um he's a ballsy dude, as you'll hear. He he just sort of, you know, decided he wants to do something and he fucking does it. And things tend to fall into place for people like that. So I'm uh, very happy to have him on here and, and introduce you to him. I guess it was the episode with my sister when I was talking about shitting in the woods for some reason. I think, oh, I think someone had sent me a question asking me, like, where do you shit when you're in the van or whatever? Um, which, you know, I'm sure <laughs> my sister was thrilled about that. Uh, to have me talking about shitting on her episode. But anyway, uh, people sent me some stuff after that that I wanted to read. This is Ernest Becker uh, on shitting. Ernest Becker is a amazing writer. Um, he wrote um, Denial of Death, I believe. Um, anyway, this, this is Ernest Becker talking about shitting. He says, quote, Excreting is the curse that threatens madness because it shows man his abject finitude, his physicalness, the likely unreality of his hopes and dreams. But even more immediately, it represents man's utter bafflement at the sheer nonsense of creation. To fashion the sublime miracle of the human face, the mysterium tremendum of radiant feminine beauty, the veritable goddesses that beautiful women are. To bring this out of nothing, out of the void, and make it shine in noonday. To take such a miracle and put miracles again within it, deep in the mystery of eyes that peer out the eye that gave even the dry Darwin a chill. To do all this and to come Combine it with an anus that shits. It's too much. Nature mocks us and poets live in torture. Unquote. So there you go. <laughs> there you have it. The divine conundrum of human existence. I remember reading a long time ago some Buddhist book and uh, it quoted some teaching of the Buddha saying, you know, when you gaze upon even the most beautiful woman, never forget that her guts are full of shit. <laughs> Something like that. It's paraphrasing the Buddha. Um, and I think that's a, that's a good teaching. Um, because, you know, on some level, I think all of us are disgusted with ourselves. And maybe the people who are most, you know, because we all know ourselves in those moments where we're coughing up phlegm or taking a dump or, you know, whatever. These these things that we hide from other people, we know. We're each very well aware of, uh, you know, the uh, the bafflement. What does he call it? The utter bafflement at the sheer nonsense of creation. Yeah, we we all know about that, right? But we tend to keep it to ourselves. But I wonder if if the people who are most tortured by this are not necessarily the poets, um, but the people who other people hold in high esteem for their beauty. Like, you know, fashion models and just, you know, whatever, beautiful women. Because maybe for them, like if you're just a dude, 
you know, who hawks up, you know, a, a Luger and spits out the window occasionally. It's not that big a leap to, you know, the anus and the shit and the rest of it, the animalness, the animality of existence. Whereas if you're this, you know, divine goddess that Becker's talking about, uh, you know, so beautiful, so flawless, so whatever. For that person, for for you, the animality of your existence is uh, even more sort of a, a betrayal, right? It's it it's a fraud. You're a your imposter syndrome must be just out of fucking control. That's why. You know, people talk, hear these stories about when I was living with the fashion models. I, I wasn't into the models because they're tortured by this stuff. I My idea of a attractive woman is someone who has no trouble at all taking a dump in the woods. In fact, that's sort of been my, my litmus test uh, since I was a very young guy. Like, you know, a woman who's like, hey, yeah, I'll just pull over and take a dump behind that bush over there. No need to wait till we get to a Denny's. That's my kind of girl right there. Um, a, because she's a lot easier to travel with. B, because someone who's not hung up on this apparent conflict between their animality and their beauty uh, is probably way sexier because sexuality is animality, right? I think I think a reason that a lot of women, especially American women, uh, have problems with orgasm is that orgasm is an animal surrender. It's a surrender to the organic. It's a surrender to something that isn't conscious. It's not controlled. It's not clean and neat. It's it's out of control. It's it's wild. And Unless you recognize your animality and respect it, it's very hard to surrender to the wild. It's very hard to acknowledge it. So for me, that's that's always been an important thing. Like someone who's like, no, no, I'll just hold it. I'll hold it. I'll hold it. Like, oh, come on, girl, let it go. Or sneezing. Like these, these people, ha, ha, ha. come on, that's not a sneeze. Fucking sneeze. Now, don't sneeze all over me. Wear a mask. But let it go. Sneezing feels good, right? Sneezing is like a, a little, you know, a little tip from nature. Like, here you go. Here's a little something extra. Enjoy it. Anyway, uh, so then I, I, I rant about shitting and then I, I get emails. This is one of the great joys of this podcast is that there are so many people out there full of unlikely knowledge and I say something on this podcast and suddenly I'm getting emails from you know experts on these things it turns out here I get an expert from an email from an expert on shitting in the woods this person Chris Corey is actually an environmental and civil engineer avid outdoors person he's designed and built composting toilets and developing countries with engineers without borders and he now practices as a drainage and stormwater engineer okay (laughs) so this guy knows what he's talking about and he says in your recent intro with your sis you answered someone's questions about where you go to bathroom in the van i totally agree with you that pooping in nature is all right and never to leave toilet paper out on the ground 
Although you did not specifically say to bury the poop, a minimum of 18 inches. True, that was an oversight on my part. I have a camp shovel uh, that I use. Can't promise I always get 18 inches down, but I try. Um, anyway, he says, it's actually okay to bury toilet paper with your poop. It gives dry material to dry the moisture from the poo so microorganis microorganisms can compost it and turn it into soil. Better yet would be to add some ash from a fire and it'll compost much faster. So there you go. That's from Chris Corey, who is a, uh, a shit engineer, apparently. Thank you, Chris. All right, that's probably all I need to say. I think I've probably already said too much, haven't I? Yeah, it's a week before the election in the United States. I don't know what to say. I mean, God knows Joe Biden is not my idea of anything like what I would like to see this country. Um, but he's a lot better than that fucking douchebag that's in there at the moment. And when I say douchebag, ladies, I do not mean to insult you or your animality. I hope that's clear by now. All right, this song was sent to me by a listener when I was in Montana. Um, the song is called Big Sky Blues, and I was in the town of Big Sky, Montana, when I recorded this conversation. This is Phil Griffin, uh, and he says, uh, WasteDivision.org is the website that will point you toward all his stuff. That's WasteDivision.org. Um, he's, uh, yeah, he's got a podcast and, uh, he's on Instagram, all that stuff, but you can find everything at waste-division.org. This is Big Sky Blues by Phil Griffin. I hope you dig it. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Joey Rossitano as much as I did. I, I should warn you that I was recording this remotely. Obviously he's on this little island in Korea and I'm sitting in the Marriott in Big Sky, Montana. Um, and we had some interruptions. The, the the connection kept going out two or three times. I've edited it out a bit, but um, you'll notice uh, a couple points. I'll say, okay, we're back, uh, you know, uh, and where we left off, you were saying this. It's because the thing just froze up occasionally. So I uh, hope that's not uh, too annoying for you. I think I've edited out all the bumpy bits. Enjoy the ride. Thanks for listening, people. I'll talk to you again soon. One, two, three, four. Days and them's brother, I'm running off the crumb. 
got some payments for my car. Take a think about going away. God damn, I could go for a couple days. Give me time. Give me the world. Joey Rossitano is here mm. with me. Uh, by here, I mean the nether, the nether world, the space between. You know, uh, where are you? You're in Korea right now. Yeah, I'm on an island called Jeju Island in South Korea, and uh, it is uh, it's kind of unknown. They call it the uh, Hawaii of Korea. And uh, some of the really bad, like, uh, tourism advertisements here and, and, you know, campaigns have called it the Hawaii of the Pacific, which makes no sense. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> but, of the uh, Pacific. Yeah, right. It, it is a lot like Hawaii in the, uh, in the summertime. It's a subtropical island. It's maybe 100 miles lengthwise and about 50 miles across the other way maybe 30 miles, something like that. So it's, it's a beautiful kind of resort Island in, in Korea that's famous within Korea and a little bit famous outside of Korea for these uh, women free divers who live there here. They call them the grandmothers of the sea. Hmm. And uh, I've recently uh, written an interview book with these uh, women free divers, but they're basically like women in their sixties, seventies and eighties that have, um, you know, carried on this profession of uh, free diving, you know, up to 30, up to like 10 meters into the ocean. And, uh, you know, they they kind of uh, fish for abalone and octopus and gather seaweed and stuff like that. 
um, you know, I guess what you would have called like pearl divers in ancient times, you know, and uh, yeah, it's kind of famous for that. And uh, there's a lot of kind of the K-pop stuff is filmed here, music videos and stuff like that when they need more of a tropical theme. But it's really more of a temperate place. So it has uh, four seasons. But uh, yeah, it's it's a gorgeous island. It's a beautiful. And how place. long have you been there? Fourteen years, a long time. Yeah. How'd you get there? What's because you're American, right? I'm American. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, uh, it's it's a long story. Um, but uh, yeah, I was actually uh, I kind of had uh, I wrote out kind of a uh, a little I don't know like timeline of stuff that I've done. Uh-huh. Would it be okay to kind of go through that before we start? Sure, to, sure. yeah. You know, I, it may give you some ideas of what to get into, but uh, have some structure, some structure, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for a change. Not, not really structure. It's just you know, it's uh, I, I haven't done one of these things before, and uh, you know, here I am, and I, I, I don't think anyone knows who I am out there. So this may give some. Well, they uh, soon will. Yeah. They soon will. Okay, so. Uh, Anyway, I'm uh, first thing I got. Um, I come from a professional wrestling family. Uh, grandfather was a professional rather a wrestler. Father was a professional wrestler. I was not. Uh, no my kidding. little sister was. Uh, so when you say professional yeah. wrestler, are you talking about the like WW whatever it is the you know um, Hulk Hogan and that that crew? Or are you talking about actual wrestling? I'm talking well. My my grandfather was Macho Man Randy Savage's father's tag team partner way back in the day. <laughs> so That's they they're, they're Italian like my grandfather was. They're the Pafos, Lanny Pafo. So it's Lanny Pafo Senior was my grandfather's uh, wrestling partner in New York. Hmm. Yeah, and then uh, my so father. It's, it's show wrestling. I mean, obviously there's there's athleticism involved in it, but it's. My understanding of professional wrestling is that it's like a like a reality show or something. It's it's drama and and characters and all that kind of stuff. Oh, dude, total drama, total drama. I mean, uh, this you know, do you know the kind of uh, you know, uh, I guess like narrative prop of like the sleeper hold? Did you ever hear of that? Like when you're a kid or. You know, well, where you it, 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 it's kind of like uh, it came from like jujitsu and all that, where you really choke somebody out, but they worked it into wrestling years and years and years, decades ago. I, I think my grandfather was kind of responsible for bringing that into the professional wrestling circuit, you know? Wow. And that it, it's kind of, um, yeah, no, total show wrestling. I mean, it's professional wrestling. It's the, uh, my grandfather was really famous in the South, especially. He was kind of the, you know, in the 50s and 60s in Nashville, he was kind of the main hero and kind of the, you know, it wasn't combined into the WWF or WWE yet. It was kind of like a regional thing. Hmm. So he was kind of the top of, you know, the southern region. Right. And he did this big thing like he did this big thing with his uh, tag team partner who was black and they were like the first integrated tag team wrestling oh. in in the cool. south and they did it the same week that uh selma went down and all that type of stuff so it was kind of a it yeah it was he did something kind of a historically significant uh also hmm. so uh yeah i kind of came out of there after uh after that i kind of grew up working in kind of an herbal medicine shop that that he ran um years after he stopped wrestling and Anyway, uh, yeah, I lived in. Uh, I got to stop being nervous, man. I'm too nervous. <laughs> I got to chill out for a second. 
It's it's eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah, uh, I'm drinking a beer over here. I don't I don't recommend that to you probably, but um. <laughs> I, I I'm gonna grab a coffee. Let me grab a coffee real quick. All right. Yeah yeah. All right, we're back with our coffee and beer. All right. Not coffee. in the same cup. That's right. <laughs> so your dad was a wrestler as well. Yeah, my dad was a wrestler until he was maybe something like 35. He wasn't uh, he wasn't so famous and he kind of uh, assisted my grandfather being his tag team partner and stuff like that for a while. But uh, yeah, he didn't um, he didn't really uh, pursue it, you know, uh, too late in life. Yeah. Yeah. Where where did you grow up in the States? In Nashville, Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, okay, Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, okay. Uh, do you want to go down your list or you want to just tell me how you got from Nashville to Korea? Yeah, I'll, I'll go down my list and then we can take it from there. So, right. uh, yeah. So, uh, let's see, I've lived in Mexico, Europe, uh, Barcelona, uh, five days after graduating university, I went to France with $500 intending to walk to Barcelona, uh, to start living there, but it took me about two years to arrive uh, because I met a woman on the way <laughs> in uh, France. That's the way it always goes. Yeah. So really, you were going to walk from Paris to Barcelona? I, I did. I went to, uh, I flew to France, I think it was five days after I graduated, and I considered saving up money, but I decided not to, and I decided just kind of head out, you know? Right. And, uh, you know, I had, uh, I think... Uh, at some point, like a plastic sack of clothes, you know, that type of uh, just just let's head out and let's do it. What I can carry on my back in a tent. And uh, I was going to walk these kind of uh, grand radonade trails that go through all the villages in France from like village to village. And I thought, yeah, I want to live in Barcelona. I had been there for a, uh, a break before, like a school break. So I decided I wanted to. Uh, you know, make an adventure of it and kind of walk down from Paris. And I think I made it five days. I took a train to some kind of a small town that seemed like a better, you know, starting point than the city mm-hmm. itself. Yeah. And uh, basically it rained for five days. And on the on the actual trail, it turned out that um, I kind of figured out on the way that I was going to pass the house of a girl that I worked with in kind of a, a computer. I forgot what it was. I think it was the history department, uh, you know, computer room at the university who was from France and she was an exchange student. And I was going to meet her basically pass right by the doorway of her house randomly on this trail. So I kind of figured this out through email. We were kind of going back and forth and I, I sent her a picture of the map or something like that. And she was like, oh, my God, you're going to go by my front door, literally by the front door. So. Yeah, I went through uh, this village and we met up and, uh, you know, things kind of happened and I kind of stayed around there for a while, kind of blew it with her uh, and uh, parted ways. Haven't talked to her in 15 years or so. And uh, Mm -hmm. I went to Paris to work and uh, lived in Paris for a year working at a tourism company. And then uh, I kind of lived homeless there for a year in squats and just kind of tented around the city. And kind of kind of lived with all of these kind of uh, indigent people and other kind of expats that were kind of remember the kind of occupied movement, like the occupied house movement yeah. in Europe. I kind of lived in those type of places, you know, kind of brushed, uh, you know, cross paths with these kind of like, uh, I guess they would be Antifa today. But these kind of anarchist types that were occupying the cities at that time, there were lots in Barcelona, too. I'm sure you remember. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. did you speak French when you when you went to France? 
When I got there, I did not, but I already spoke Spanish pretty well. So I was kind of converting on the job when I worked for the tourism company. I was kind of converting, you know, Spanish grammar to French and kind of making it up. And after after about a year, I was pretty good. You know, I could get hmm. by. Now I still can understand it, but you know, there's no way I can speak well at this point. Yeah. Well, you yeah. you obviously have some. Uh linguistic talent i was watching your one of your films or, or uh, i think it was a tedx presentation you, you did which had film clips in it uh and it looks like you speak the language like a local language as well as korean yeah that's right i i guess maybe i'm probably one of two or three foreign people in the world that can understand the language that they speak on jeju island hmm. so when you're in the city like i'm in the city now in jeju city people speak standard korean but the elderly people speak you know the local dialect or the local language called jeju all Right. So that's, uh, yeah, uh, you know, through my interviews with shamans and women divers and all this type of thing, and just through, you know, kind of listening to the field recordings that I've taken of all these rituals and things like that, I've learned how to, uh, you know, I understand pretty well and I speak, you know, well enough to get by. Yeah. It's yeah. not easy. Well, yeah. I was watching an interview you did uh, with this really charming old lady who took you out to see a temple in an orange grove or something. Right. Right. You remember that one? Yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. She was telling you about things. And then there was another interview later in that same segment. A woman was sitting down. She was so funny and she's laughing all the time. And at one point she looked at you and she said, are you understanding what I'm saying? And you're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> OK. And she yeah. kept going. That was great. That's yeah. that's 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 kind of what I do, man. I go to the village, you know, for the last decade, I guess I've gone to each village, village by village. And I'm trying to collect the shamanic myths that are told you know, all across the island, but particularly, you know, there are different myths that pertain to the gods who they believe live in each village. So I'm trying to make a kind of, well, not a complete record, but a record of how these local people interact with the deities who live in the villages, who live in these trees, they're tree deities, tree spirits who live in trees or rocks or caves. And, uh, you know, just kind of like the relationship between the people and the deities and what that relationship means to them. And it's like a, a relationship for them with a real person. And uh, so I got those. Yeah, I get that all the time. Uh, you know, people who young people even who come from the city who go out to the villages, they're kind of like foreigners visiting their grandparents because mm. it's a different culture. These kids are all on the K-pop and, uh, you know, into the dramas and Hollywood and all this type of stuff. But the older people have a totally different culture that's much older and very much separated from what the young people are doing. So when I go there, they're used to that situation from their own family members that, that right. this kind of person who's a little clunky with the language comes out. Yeah. Yeah. They're not used to being a white dude from America though. They're not, man. They're not. Yeah. And, uh, there's a little bit more interest in this subject now, but, uh, 10 years ago when I would do this stuff, I mean, before the kind of tourist boom on the Island, uh, I, I mean, people would just stop what they were doing, you know, they would drop their tools or whatever and just kind of look at me and they became very interested in me and it kind of blew their mind when I could communicate with them, you know? So it's, yeah, uh, it's, bet. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, so tell, yeah. tell me a little more about Paris. I mean, that's, that's wild. You, you fly over there with 
Would you say five hundred bucks? It's five hundred bucks. It was five hundred bucks. Yeah. It's <laughs> it seemed like everyone back then wanted to go to Europe, right? And no, no one of all the expats in in Jeju and in Korea and all this, no one no one really wants to go to Europe now. But when I was in university, like the brave went to Europe, you know, and, and so a what, lot of. The, mm-hmm. What year are we talking? Late nineties. Ta- I was I was there. The first time I went would have been. Uh, Let's see. I'm 41 now, so it would have been about uh, 18 years ago. So, mm, what is that? So 2003, about early 2000s. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Right. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So you cruise over there. You got no plan. You're young, crazy dude. You blew it with the chick. Bad move, man. Very, it's so, very, it's such I, a romantic I, story. I, I, I looked her up recently, and you know, it's like I, I saw this documentary a few years ago. It's like the the guy is about my age, and he had a young lover in France, and he looked her up, you know. And I was like, well, I found myself just recently looking her up, and she's really hard to look up. She was a, she was a Wiccan. She was into witchcraft uh, and all this stuff, oh, you know. Wow. She hid it from me too. I caught her kind of in the act at at some point. And, uh, you know, so I looked her up recently and I kind of found her and I kind of, you know, I kind of regretted it in a way, this kind of romantic notion like, ah, yeah, I could have ended up in the village in uh, in France there. But, you know, no regrets <laughs> with a, man. with a yeah. witch, yeah. with a witch. I wonder if yeah. she's still a witch. Yeah, she was. So there's she was, a, mm. I was going to say, it sounds like there's a there's a thread running through your life here with uh, the sort of interest in shamanism and, you know, pagan rites and. Wiccan, and uh, I mean, not, not that that's what attracted you to her, since it was a secret. But there must have been some feeling. It could have been, man. There could have been something under, you know, under the surface. Something, you know, I don't know. What, what did you study in college? I studied anthropology and Spanish. I, I did a semester in Mexico, and that's where I, I learned Spanish. But when when I got there, I barely knew anything. You know, I would sit in the back of the class and just keep my mouth shut. So. Yeah. That was in uh, Morelia. Have you ever heard of Morelia, Michoacan? Yeah, yeah. I, th- so I think it's a dangerous not... place to be e- now. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And even when I was there, there were a few murders, and they would kind of say, you know, like gringos shouldn't go to these certain areas. But, yeah, I think that uh, it's kind of a, a no-go zone now. Um, yeah. yeah, I love Mexico. I've, I've traveled a lot in Mexico, and breaks my heart to see what's what's happening down there. Although, honestly, it's n- nowhere near as dangerous as the United States, you know, as far as just uh, you're not going to be killed randomly the way you could be in the right. States. It's, you know, the people are getting off in Mexico are generally involved in the drug trade. Yeah, I, I worry about myself having been in Korea so long where it's so safe uh, if, if you don't get run mm. down in the street or something like that. But uh mm. You know, it, it. I worry about my mentality. I, I remember, uh, you know, being in Nashville a couple of years ago, visiting my folks and I was kind of in a, a bad area of town, which I don't even know where the bad areas of town are now. It's been gentrified so much there. And I, I remember it was like 3 a.m. I was coming back from vi- visiting friends at the gas station and there were just like these dudes, you know, the typical scene, like hoodies kind of hanging around looking at me like, this guy doesn't know what the fuck he's doing or where he is. And I was like, damn it, man. Yeah. The United States, you have to kind of be aware of what you're doing. Like, you know, uh, shit happens, you know? So, yeah. uh, yeah, but Korea is uh, a very safe, you know, there's none of that. There's no one there's, there's thieves and there's robberies, but not really at gunpoint or knife point or anything like that. It's, it's yeah. much more subtle, you know, to get robbed in Barcelona. Uh, I had, uh, I remember the Raval, 
Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Good place of course. To get I, mean, <laughs> I, I never had anything on me. They would come and they would do their tricks and grab me. And, and you know, I, I was a little bit braver back then. I'd push them off or, you know, I, I remember just seeing tourists get robbed left and right. Oh, yeah. And people wouldn't even say anything because it was so ubiquitous. You know, you just sat there and uh, you could see people on both sides of you on that main. What was the main passage? The Rambles. That's right. Yeah. The Rambles. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but uh, Gracias is yeah. a more commercial street. You know? I, I remember telling a, a Swedish woman she was going to walk through the Raval. And we were going to walk around to go to some club to go to some other neighborhood or something. I remember she wanted to walk right through and she was really insistent upon that. And we said, you, you really shouldn't go through there. We should walk around. It's been really rough lately. You know, and I remember her. She she refused to go with the group. The group walked around. And she walked through within five minutes. She was robbed. You know, some, yeah. someone had a gun, like an unloaded gun, but they had pulled, pulled it on her and backed her mm -hmm. down an alley or something like that. Yeah. 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 Everyone I know who, who's been spent any time in Barcelona has been robbed, including me. I, I, uh, that's why I lived there. I don't know if you heard me tell the story. I, I have not. I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. I was on my way somewhere else. I was traveling and, uh, yeah, I was actually planning to go to live in Sevilla for a while, and I just stopped in Barcelona. And the first night, uh, I was sitting on the Ramblas, and this is like '89, I think, late like November of '89. And um, yeah, and somebody distracted me, and while I was talking to him, the other guy stole my bag, and it had my passport and you know a journal I'd been writing in for like four years. Oh, you know, that's that the was, worst, man. That's that was the, the worst. worst. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I needed to get a new passport, so I needed I had to wait like ten days or something for the consulate to you know to have it shipped over or whatever they do. And during that time, somebody offered me a job, and I met a woman, and somebody offered me a room, and it was like, ah, oh, this is kind of cool here. Maybe I'll stick around for the winter, you know. And twenty years later, I was <laughs> still living there. <laughs> My God, you Crazy. stayed twenty years. Where did you live in Barcelona? What neighborhoods? Or I uh, guess I lived all over. All over. That time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I had my first apartment was um, like uptown in a rich area called Tres Torres. Uh, I had I rented a room there, and then I lived in. Well, people listening to this don't know what we're talking about, but I lived right. in all different parts of the city. Right. Um, and I didn't stay there for 20 years, uh, you know, consecutively. I sort of left, went to grad school, came back and moved to Portugal for a while, came back. So I've sort of had like three different lives in Barcelona with because a lot of the friends I had in the first life, you know, they were expats and they'd moved on by the time I moved back. So uh, they were gone. And uh, yeah, so it's interesting when I think about Barcelona, it's, it's kind of like three different cities for me because I live there in these three different times in my life but yeah roughly about 20 years altogether mm. and who knows, i still have an apartment there i might go back again who knows right right yeah it's a great city man I, i'm sure it's changed a lot over the years and uh you know it was yeah it was a lot of fun living there i think i was there about two years in total so i was mm. there twice i was there for six months and then came back for like a year and a half later on right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's a hard place to leave yeah i um my apartment is in a place called uh, Pueblo Seco. You know where mm -hmm. that is? On I the remember parallel. the name. Yeah. It's right yeah. at the, the base of Montjuic. Uh, right, Olympic, right. Yeah. All the Olympic installation. Yeah. Yeah. Cool place. So you, uh, what did you do after Barcelona? Were you teaching English there or something? 
Yeah, Barcelona, I taught English and did a lot of odd jobs. I uh, I was kind of coming out of France of the kind of uh, semi-homeless kind of uh, situation. So, uh, yeah, I started out real rough. I remember that, just kind of uh, crashing on couches and things like this. I, I remember being in uh, Gracia, the neighborhood of Gracia, on some friends' couches there at first for, you know, a couple months. And then, uh, yeah, slowly I found some English teaching jobs or translating jobs, stuff like that. And mm -hmm. uh, never had a lot of money there, just kind of scrounged by. But, you know, it was I was just having fun and just kind of going out and, and uh, you know, meeting people and all that. I wasn't really, uh, you know, embedded so much there to stay, I guess. Yeah. And Barcelona then, is a, I mean, a great place to not be rich, actually. it's You can mm -hmm. have a pretty comfortable life with minimal money. The right. mass transit works fine. You can always get a beer, you know, sit in a terrace, watch the world go by. It's it. You don't need a lot of money to have a like a basic, decent sense of uh, what's the what's the word quality of life there. Right. That's one of the things I really like about Spain. Yeah. Yeah. I meet uh, expats in Korea, like younger expats. It's kind of their first time out of their countries. And I, I tell them, to, yeah, you should do a year, you know, in Spain or in Europe somewhere. And uh, they're always worried about the money. That's the biggest thing. And I'm like, yeah. you know, it, it, it may be, but there's a lot you can do without it. Uh, you know, I, I did yeah. anyway when I was there. Yeah. I mean, I, I would recommend they go to India, Nepal, Indonesia. Your money goes a lot further down sure. there. Sure. You know, yeah. if yeah. Yeah, I kind of I, my philosophy was always, you know, when I'm young and, and I'm like ready to sleep on the ground or on someone's sofa or whatever, like that's when you go mm -hmm. to the difficult places. Right. And then right. later, you know, when you're older, you'll have some money and you can go, you know, take a cruise down the fucking Danube or something. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> sure. Man. So uh, so I'm interrupting your your uh, progression here. So after uh, Barcelona, then what'd you do? Yeah, after Barcelona, I uh, well in Barcelona. Um, after that, I had a, a friend invite me to come live in Korea here in uh, on Jeju, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that situation happened. My friend was training martial arts here uh, to become a martial arts instructor uh, back home in Alaska. We grew up together in Nashville, but he moved to Alaska right after high school. And I hadn't heard from him in years and years. And he sent me a photograph of him on a motorcycle beside a traditional house. And he was like, hey, man, there's a job here. You should come tomorrow. You know, what? so, yeah. So that's basically uh, I, I I was living in the Exampla. Is that how you say it? Uh, yeah, right. And yeah. Uh, in one of those houses there with four or five people. And it turned out that a roommate had been uh you know, just kind of taking all of our room money and spending it. And he didn't let us know. So we were being kicked out. So I had four or five days to make a decision anyway. So I just kind of took a walk around one of those blocks and I was like, hey, let's do it. Let's go to Korea. So I bought a plane ticket pretty quick, went to uh, some type of Korean embassy in Barcelona. And, uh, you know, they they couldn't understand that I said I had studied archaeology they thought i said agriculture so they said uh ah, you can't go you can't farmers we can't give uh farmers a, a teaching visa for korea you know so uh finally convinced them no it's it's anthropology it's like a, a regular degree and you know they sent me on and i've been here since wow. um yeah yeah that's fantastic man yeah i, I love yeah. i love the balls it's like uh you take a wrestling approach, a professional wrestler's approach to travel. You just <laughs> jump right in. 
Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I mean, yeah. Why? You know, uh, I did. I did. Yeah. All right. I started recording again. Uh, where where we lost our connection, uh, I had just said that you took a professional wrestler's approach to travel. Uh, uh, I admired right. your your ballsy approach to just jumping in. <laughs> yeah, I I think I've done uh, a lot of things without uh, thinking too much, uh, especially earlier in my life, and uh, that has some negatives and positives. Uh, this thing with uh, you know studying the the shamanism here was definitely like something I jumped into. Uh, I think pretty bravely, uh, in a way. And, uh, you know, it's really paid off. It's been an amazing experience. And that was just because, uh, in, in Korea, sometimes, uh, what you want to show about the culture is, is policed by, um, kind of the soft power of the culture. Like, uh, this place is really producing an image that it wants to project to the world, you know, especially, and it's amazing now all this kind of Korean culture that's gone out to the world, uh, recently, mm. um, you know, with the Oscar win from parasite and just kind of Korean drama, you know, kids in America are watching Korean dramas, this type of thing. So shamanism is something that they don't want people to know about. So mm. the fact that I wanted to go into that was discouraged by a lot of people at first, but at the same time, um, as far as like as a region, Jeju Island, it's a very important aspect of the culture and it's kind of their main religion here. So I knew that it was something that I had to do. So I, I just kind of went with it. And after I after I made like, you know, the, the action just to go forth with it, people kind of respected it. They kind of it, local people accepted me like, ah, that's the foreign guy that's studying our shamanism. And everybody opened up and it just became like a thing. You know, whereas before it was kind of a discouraged, uh, you know, a, a, a point of shame for them. I think that when a lot of people locally saw that a foreign person was so into it, it actually uh, had some reverberation. It was like, wow, this thing is uh, is really valuable. Not that I was the only one doing it, but there were maybe 10 of us kind of looking into this, like local, just me and locals. And there's been a few foreign people come over the years doing their Ph.D., and things like that. But that, that period when, you know, those local people and I were kind of looking into it and documenting everything, it did make a change kind of in the culture where they realized like, ah, oh, this is something that, that we should kind of promote and respect, you know, so um, is, is the shamanism, um, is it only a spiritual practice or is it also like shamanism in other parts of the world? Does it also incorporate healing uh, rituals, um, use of plants and that sort of thing, altered states of consciousness? Yeah. So there's, uh, yeah, it, um, so, you know, one of the local researchers here, he, he has this line that he says that shamanism, shamanism on Jeju Island is about story healing. So basically there are these 12 myths on the island that are kind of like the epic myths. And that's like the canon of epic myths, kind of like the, the Old Testament of Jeju Island. And each one of those 12 myths is a narrative, about a two or three hour long narrative that the shamans recite. And there's two ways to recite them. One is through chanting and singing, and the other is through normal like narrative storytelling. And each one of those myths are assigned a different role in healing ceremonies. So, for example, if you had a sick child 
and you brought the sick child to the shaman, then they would sing the myth that corresponds to sick children, which would be the myth to this kind of a mother goddess called Myeongjinguk Halmani, Myeongjinguk grandmother. And that's the goddess that heals the sick children. And you honor her by telling her her myth. And there's this moment where they call it the, the gods meet the people and the people meet the gods. So while you're telling the myth, you're honoring the gods and you're communicating with the god. And the, and the god is happy to hear you honor her or him. So he kind of reflects it back to you and they send like their healing powers. But these ceremonies, so they don't use uh, psychedelic substances, but they do go into trance. But they use like endurance and dance mm. and uh chanting and other psychological kind of methods uh even who, even who goes into even, trance the shaman or the people seeking the healing the shamans the shamans, the shamans yeah. do. Okay. yeah yeah although i mean the first time i went to a ceremony it was very hard for me to to you know i i went to a ceremony and i was trying to film it and i had to stop filming it because i i felt like i was going to fall down just mm. the music and the drama of it and just kind of the outlandish nature of what i was watching happening in in one of these small villages at this shrine um you know it was just overwhelming and i got used to it over time where i could kind of uh, uh, adapt and and it I, it became very familiar for me the music and the lyrics and the stories and I got to know like everything where everything fit in its place almost to the point where it's become kind of a religion to me almost uh if I go to a ceremony I I have like a a feeling of openness and calm and uh like this beautiful kind of religiosity kind of like walking into a European cathedral or something and mm. being like overwhelmed or just like a sublime moment in in the mountain or whatever you know I just have these Immediately, even thinking about it right now, it kind of enters me a little bit. And I feel like my physiology even changes a bit, you know, so mm. um, they're very power. They've figured out it's almost like a technology where they've they've learned through the centuries how to run these um, these ceremonies, which would be like an ayahuasca ceremony or something with kind of, uh, y you know, they have they have ways of uh, cleansing rites before you begin the ceremony, which which starts like three days before the ceremony begins. And you have to start kind of, uh, I, I think you do this. I've never done ayahuasca, but I think that, uh, you know, I've, I've heard some from our, our mutual friend Mandy, but uh, I uh, believe you have to state your intentions before you go into the into the ceremony to get answers from the entities or whatever. And the, this is just I've, I've heard podcasters talk about it, you know, but in in Je on Jeju, it's the same way. The the three days before you go to the ritual, you adhere to a special diet and taboo avoidance and you start to kind of uh, internalize things that you want to change about your life or that you want to ask the gods for advice for. So this kind of uh, psychological preparation, you know, session starts, uh, you know, sometimes a week before, sometimes three days before. Then you go to the ceremony, which takes place underneath, uh, uh, you know, a 500-year-old holy tree, um, hmm. these kind of hackberry trees, which are the, the local kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, tree that's designated as like the god trees. And you go to one of those at uh, 3 or 4 a.m. Everything's dark. Uh, mostly old people, they come there and they gather around the tree. And they start preparing offerings under the tree to the gods. And each person individually starts uh, saying prayers and asking the goddess or the god 
you know, for whatever gift or whatever advice they want in their life. Then around five or six o'clock, the shaman comes in. There's no big, uh, they don't announce themselves or anything like that. You'll just hear drumming in the back of the shrine. And, uh, you know, the Korean book drum, they start drumming and they'll start chanting. They'll start the very first opening of the ceremony. They call it the opening of the sky. So Mm -hmm. then they call the gods down and this will go all day long. You know, the drums will start at maybe 6 a.m. and they'll go to about 6 p.m. And Mm. throughout the day, there are uh, there's play acting in the shrine, different rituals where people are getting physical. There are uh, there's a section where there's like of the of the ritual where there's kind of a grieving process and the shaman cries for the people. Like they internalize the grief of like the people who have been lost in the village that year or the grief of the people who go there. And it's it's a very all the while they're telling these shamanic myths and narratives that these people have uh, grown familiar with. And, you know, kind of connecting the stories of the gods that these people have come into contact and believed with all all their lives um, throughout the ceremony. So it causes this really kind of a, a emotional purge. You know, that you can see if you go to a ceremony, you can see how expertly they kind of work this uh, process. So even without psychedelics, there's a way of like uh, pushing people to like the limit of their emotion or stamina, stamina or just Mm. kind of psychological preparation that brings people to catharsis, you know. Yeah. In the shamanic myths, there are psychedelics in the myths, in the myths. Yes, there are. There are. Yeah. Yeah. Within the uh, there are two types of psychedelic mushrooms that grow on the island here, and people sometimes use them for recreation, but not really related to the religion. Mm-hmm. But in two of the myths, the gods do do take psychedelic mushrooms within the myths. So that's mm-hmm. kind of a there's even a joke in one of the myths where there's a, a type of psilocybin that's active and there's a type that's non-active. So one of the gods gives another uh, god uh, one of these mushrooms, but it ends up being the non-active kind. And the guy who takes it says, oh, nothing happened. Like, what's going on? You know, nothing happened. So what? You know, so it's kind of this like internal joke. Right. So so the question is, uh, did did they use them in ritual context uh, back in the day? I, I don't think they did. I think it was just something like here where, you know, teenagers like to go to the fields and uh, pick the mushrooms or people, you know, recently on Jeju, the the surfers have gotten into this culture a bit, uh, whereas uh, I think it's a, a really new thing, you know, but it's not really it's not really properly part of the religion. It's kind of uh, separate from it. But they but yeah, they have other methods. Yeah. Are, are the shamans, do they have other jobs or is this a full time gig? It's a full time. Yeah, it's a full time gig. It's it's like being a, 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 a village Catholic priest or something like that. You know, I mean, mm. they are uh, the dignitaries that used to come from the mainland to this island used to complain about the power that the shamans had in each village here. And they thought that they, you know, uh, had more power than like local officials mm. and. In the small villages, people like the woman in the video, I mean, people like that, the, the shamans do have kind of a higher authority. And that, that can cause social problems sometimes as well. But they, you know, they administer to funerals, to weddings, to uh, all of these different healing rituals. Uh, they work uh, basically seven days a week 
performing rituals. And as the population has kind of gotten older and this kind of culture is aging out of the population, there's fewer shamans. So they're busy every day now, you know, and, and mm. most of them are in their 60s or 70s. But there are some that are, uh, you know, a couple that are mid 20s or 30s, but just oh, three really? or four. Yeah. Three or four individuals. Yeah. And male and female. Male and female. Yeah. Maybe maybe 60 percent female, 40 percent male. And do they have families and, and other sort of normal houses and stuff, or do they live separately? They're very normal villagers. They're very normal people. Uh, they don't wear uh, special clothes except during the ritual, and sometimes not even during the ritual. And, uh, yeah, they're just normal people. You can chill with them. You can, you know, um, you can have dinner at their houses. Uh, some of the younger shamans, I mean, they travel abroad. They have Instagram accounts. They, you know, so, yeah, they're... No matter what uh, generation they're from, they're normal for that generation. Interesting. Yeah. 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 And I, I saw in the, the video I was watching, um, there seemed to be some tension. Uh, I don't know if it was between villages or between the sort of dominant Korean culture and the, the island culture that you're talking about. But some of the sacred trees had been cut down. Uh, in one case, it was for a resort or something, but in another case, it just seemed to be out of spite. They weren't, wasn't to, to build something. It just was an act of vengeance or something. What's going on with that? Yeah, so this, this place is, uh, is being gentrified, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, touristic development. And these kind of, uh, when locals... Uh, you know, convert their coastal homes into coffee shops or little hotels or something like that. There's no problem because the, the shamans are celebrities in their village and some are celebrities across the island, the more famous ones. So there's a lot of respect uh, for holy sites and there's no way no Jeju Islander would ever dare touch a holy tree. It's impossible. Um, it's just, they, they believe in this kind of, you know, divine retribution and, and every, every village has a story, you know, my uncle cut a limb off the tree and he broke his leg the next day, you know, the Christian preacher, uh, cut down one of the trees and he died of a heart attack a week later, like that type of thing. Every village has that type of story. And, uh, so uh, there's no way that's going to happen. But when people come from the outside, when they come from the mainland, uh, yeah, they they will, you know, if there's a holy tree beside the hotel that they're putting up, they'll totally cut down the tree. Sometimes half the time out of spite, because there's a lot of prejudice against uh, people who practice shamanism in Korea, even though almost everybody practices it. But the way they really? practice it on the mainland is very... Um, there's like a popular culture way of practicing it, you know, like getting divination read on your phone or, you know, uh, it, it, it's it's bizarre, man. But this this Jeju stuff is the real old, you know, real stuff. And yeah, so in my time, uh, I've documented maybe 12 holy sites that have been destroyed. And, uh, you know, I got involved in this uh, in this one village uh, because I was kind of uh, doing surveys of the different villages, taking pictures of all these, uh, you know, shamanic shri uh, shrines and sites. And there was one village I read about in the newspaper where the trees, uh, seven or eight holy trees in the village had been cut down. And so I went there to investigate and it ended up being a church that was responsible for it, a Christian church. But this story went way back, like 50 years. It went way back to like 1948. I guess 70 years now, where 
on Jeju Island, there was this uh, basically a massacre of, I think, about 40,000 people. And when uh, when the Koreas, well, right before the Koreas split, well, the Koreas had been split at the war. But after the war, they were trying to impose these kind of U.S. sanctioned elections, of course, um, you know, on the mainland. And, and, you know, they were kind of forcing a quick vote by the people, like a presidential vote. And uh, the people of Jeju didn't like the candidate, so they backed out. Well, after that, these kind of fascist uh, youth group, kind of like a Hitler youth type of situation, came to Jeju and they started this conflict with uh, these local kind of uh, socialist youth who had been, you know, educated in in um, in Japan. It very, if if you get into this stuff, it's it very much feels like uh, it was kind of like Portland uh, is now, except. The initiating horrible thing happened where like the National Guard fired on the people, that type of thing. So this all out conflict broke out and it ended up where at the end of it, uh, innocent villagers. I mean, they went it was a Holocaust. They went village by village. Uh, If you see my TEDx talk, you can hear a woman talk about this. But they went village to village and just massacred these people. And there's this big uh, kind of mass mass. uh, Well, there's mass graves all over Jeju. But now they have a big memorial where they've tried to collect the names, you know, after so many years. And they have like memorial services every year. But so in this village was one of those villages where the trees, holder trees were cut by the church. It was one of those villages where all of these, I think, three or four hundred of the, the villagers had just been massacred there. So the people who were going to this place, this disappeared village where their old homes used to be, the survivors, these were people that fled off of the mountain when the police and National Guard were running after them or whatever federal forces that were uh, carrying this out, they had escaped. And this was their holy site on the mountain in their old village. And they had to, in order to pray, they had to return to their old village where their parents had been massacred to make, to pray once a year in these shrine ceremonies. And this church had cut down uh, those holy trees in that village. So it was particularly like egregious. So uh, we got the people that I'm talking about, the, the kind of, uh, you know, handful of people that are kind of uh, into preservation, into studying this. We got a group together and uh, we rebuilt the shrine for the people and we cleared mm-hmm. out the old trees and we tried to clean everything up. And it became kind of a, a viral story on the island. Uh, so that that went a long way to getting kind of recognition that this stuff was happening. But the thing that. OK, so. People in Jeju are mostly Buddhist. There's very few Protestant Christians, um, but Protestant Christians in Korea have a lot of power. They hold a lot of power. The governor of the island is a Protestant Christian. Um, so most people will side with the villagers in a situation like this. But the situation where people won't touch it is where there is a big uh, conglomerate coming uh, to build a hotel or something like that or a Chinese business uh, to a village and they destroy the shrines because money, money talks, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, there's all kinds of economic hitmen types of people who come in to do, you know, consulting for these projects. And there's just it's a really hard thing to fight. So the big fight on the island now is this big uh, aerotropolis, they call it a second airport that's coming in a totally unnecessary airport 
for this tiny little island. And that will completely destroy six or seven villages and maybe 10 more shrines. So that's there's a big fight about that now. There's a protest and an occupation at the government building here. Is and it dangerous for you to be involved in these conflicts? I have been uh, threatened a bit. I have been kind of told that uh, if I get too active that, you know, I won't get a visa next year and, and stuff like that. Uh, but it's been more subtle. Um, I think because I because I have that pedigree of having studied this stuff for 10 years, the locals are more accept. They they didn't think about attacking me so much because they're like, oh, that's the standard foreign guy that's here that does that kind of work. But I kind of keep I don't show up uh, publicly at the protest and stuff like that. I, I, I assist because I can help get the the information about the fight out like it, through the media in English so I can help it go internationally. But I I don't show up on the front lines or anything. Uh, right. I, I show up once to document it and then and then I don't go back again. And uh, I, I would love to. I'd love to be out there with them. But it's not it's not a wise thing to do. Right. Right. So what's your what's your situation now in Korea? Are you you have a Korean girlfriend or are you married or you said you need <laughs> yeah. a visa? So I guess you, you haven't gone that route yet. Yeah, I haven't. I've uh, I had my one of my best Korean friends actually proposed to me uh, recently. Uh, but this is a situation that I do not judge to uh to work out very well. Uh, so I, I kind of have decided not to go that route. Um, just because the, the particular kind of, uh, uh, you know, the nature of the relationship between us and, and she lives far away actually on the mainland. And it, it, it just seems like, uh, you know, Koreans are very impulsive sometimes. And I kind of, I was like, I don't know if this impulsive thing. So yeah, I've had girlfriends here, but not, not at the moment, you know, Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty big culture gap, you know? Um, yeah. I find myself dating expats, uh, a lot mm-hmm. of the time, uh, more often in recent years, but, uh, you know, people come and go and they come and go. So this is an issue, man. I've, I've got to find a girl. I've got to find a mainstay, you know, I'm getting old and <laughs> <laughs> well, do you, would you like to stay in Korea or in Asia or what, what do you think in long term? Because this is always the conundrum of expats, you know. Sure, man. Everybody gets to an age where like, all right, what am I doing? Am I putting down roots here or am I going back or what am I doing here? Right. Yeah. I I had uh, four or five friends who are academics. You know, people come to the island and they want help uh, getting into shamanism. They're writing their paper, their thesis or whatever. So I help. Throughout the years, there's been academics like PhD uh, candidates that come in. And I end up kind of hanging out with them and, and uh, giving them advice and just, uh, you know, uh, learning from them as well. And just this last year, four or five of them said, hey, man, you've got to go to the States and do your Ph.D. You've got all the field work already. What are you doing? Hmm. And uh, I didn't really want to go the academic route, but uh, I, I kind of decided I was like, no, this this makes sense to transition back to American life to like go into the university system and not into god knows what i i don't want to go back to like a a 40 hour a week job or i mean i haven't done that type of thing in 20 years really so uh i decided to do that and was about to apply then uh the corona situation uh happened 
So I was I was actually about to leave for a big kind of a world trip for the next book book that I'm working on. Uh, I was I'm I'm doing a, a book on Eurasian shamanism, not just uh, shamanism on Jeju Island now. Mm. And I'm I'm kind of doing the interviews like this. I've I've been I've been visiting you know traveling without moving, visiting the different locations, and I've I've had people on their cell phones kind of walking around holy sites around uh, Asia with their phones, you know, just just like locals telling me uh what's going on and they i've been kind of having like the virtual experience and later of course i'll go but corona you know in korea when it first popped off there were so many cases so quickly that i mean there was kind of this air like oh my god we're all gonna die what's going on here you know it's it's just you know every day it was two thousand people then it was four thousand people then it was six thousand you know it's it's kind of getting bigger and bigger so we were really hunkered down uh and uh everybody was was pretty paranoid then the korean response was really good and i toyed with the idea i was like the first place i was going to go was the country georgia and uh, I'd, I'd set up contacts there. I was ready to kind of go to this like minority Muslim community there. And uh, it, it, you know, they, they practice shamanism kind of mixed with Islam. And I decided if I go, I could get trapped there. It probably wasn't a good idea. So I ended up staying here. But I'm kind of doing all this stuff virtually, which is, you know, through Zoom and, and whatnot, which is yeah. an interesting process. That's funny. I was in Thailand when mm-hmm. the, the virus started hitting and uh our plan was to spend a couple more months in thailand and then go to georgia i'd heard yeah a lot of good things about it yeah uh very easy place to be an expat from what i've heard you get that right your visa when you land yeah god knows what it's like did you i mean that it looks gorgeous did you i mean you you obviously cheap easy to get around nice people good food so I was, uh, my partner and I were going to spend a month or two in Georgia and then travel across northern Turkey mm-hmm. uh, and then, you know, go to uh, Spain. So that was our plan. And then, you know, everything hit and everything got crazy and yeah, didn't work out that way. But yeah, interesting, Georgia. A lot of people are talking about Georgia these days. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't realize that. I kind of stumbled into it. But uh, yeah, it looks, I've had a couple of friends who lived there for uh, just six months who, who, or who visited and they said they had a great time, you know, really mm. uh, cheap living as well. And uh, yeah, I, I don't really know what the people are like. I think I've met uh, a couple Georgians in, in my life, you know, but I mean, They've got a few like minority communities. They've got a couple like uh, semi-anarchist type of occupied zones with like their own languages and, you know, interesting like political situations, like areas that it's hard to get into. But I think that if you are cheerleading for those like separatist uh, people, they'll let you in kind of kind of that type of thing. So, yeah, yeah, I was looking forward to the adventure, but, uh, you know, I'll go later. Yeah, if there is a later. If there is we'll a later. See. We'll see, man. We'll see. <laughs> so let's let's talk about you said yeah. you're you you've already done a book uh of interviews. Uh and was that or conversations was that with the the divers? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, with and what's, the divers. Is that available okay. in English or are these in Korean or what? Uh these are in English. Yeah, the the divers book is uh it's called uh, Jeju Islands Hanyo, a user's manual. Hmm. So uh, it's it's kind of a story. There are these women freedivers uh, that live on Jeju Island. There are about 4000 of them. 
And they, there used to be 20, 30,000, not so long ago, 19, up until the 1970s. And now we're down to the last uh, generation. Most of them are over 50, probably most are over 60. Um, a few kind of uh, younger girls, like Instagram celebrities that became divers, but kind of for the, <laughs> it's pretty cool. They, they do the work, you know, but they, yeah. they kind of, so the older divers, they, they kind of miffed about that. But so these women, uh, you know, they're said to be matriarchal. They're said, they say that this is one of the matriarchal, uh, you know, actual matriarchal communities in the world. But it, it, they're, not, they're not matriarchal. It's, it's still, it's, uh, it's a situation where the women are the major breadwinners for the, the household. But the men still have the kind of, uh, you know status idea in the ideology or whatever in the dogma of the of the of the kind of local beliefs the kind of confucianism the men still have mm. like the the patriarchal status but women in jeju even that aren't divers are very independent compared to mainlanders i mean they say what they want to say uh, about half of the local businesses are run by women um you know they're uh and and this kind of all comes from this this uh they're called heino sea women from this culture, but it's amazing what they do. They dive, um, yeah, 10 meters, uh, down, they hold their breath for two minutes while they're diving at 70 years old. But the thing is, is they, they do this over a three hour period. So with very little rest up and down, up and down, up and down, uh, for mm. three, three hours, you know, so, or, or more. And, uh, yeah, they're really interesting to talk to but I, I realized that, uh, you know, they've been uh, kind of UNESCO sponsored recently as kind of, you know, intangible cultural heritage, that type of thing. Mm. But, you know, a lot of these uh, UNESCO things are used uh, basically to attract tourists to a place. So it's not really necessarily as innocent of, as a process as it seems. And even though there's been a lot of books done on the women divers, I realized that there wasn't really a book that, you know, took things from their perspective, not, uh, not, there's tons of books about like the women divers being strong women and a lot of kind of projects where, uh, Korean American women have come to Jeju and have met like their ancestors, these strong women, that type of thing, that type of angle. But there was nothing about the actual current struggles with environmental issues and like local political issues and the destruction of the shrines and all this type of stuff. So I decided to, you know, I would interview three generations of divers. So I, 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 you know, people in their seventies, people in their forties and fifties and, and casually too, even, even a diver that is like a drinking buddy of mine, you know, that like in a bar, like they're not necessarily like academic interviews, you know, a so lot of dudes interviews. as well. It's not, it's not only women. They're only women, only women. Oh, oh so yeah, your drinking women. buddy is a woman. Sure, sure. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. These are these are tough girls, man. I mean, that's they're very independent. What about uh, their their the culture. sexuality uh, with all that independence? What's the sexuality like or sexual politics on the island? Yeah, it's uh, at this point they're they're pretty normal as far as Korea is concerned. It's it's almost the same. Most women divers are, well. A lot of women divers lost that are older lost their husbands in the war and that type of thing. The middle-aged women divers uh, pretty much have like a standard uh, Korean lifestyle and the younger ones where they have a husband and 
you know, uh, the husband at this point probably has a job where he makes as much money as she does or, you know, or slightly less or whatever. It's kind of an equitable situation. But uh, a long time ago, it was very different. There was a lot of, um, you know, the major study on this was done on this little like islet that's off of Jeju Island called Udo Island. And it was kind of like about the, uh, you know, these couples where, uh, a man would have two or, two or more wives and you know most of my friends they they actually have three or four grandmothers you know it's uh there was this situation where there there's a lot of explanations for this but the major explanation given is that in the 1700s uh these kind of uh, dogmatic confucianists took over jeju island from the mainland like uh you know a confucianist governor was installed and kind of these uh you know, uh, all of the major offices on the island and the government were occupied by these kind of culturally, you know, kind of like Puritan. It's like a Puritanical movement in, in, mm. in the States. And so they basically imposed this thing, this law where men could no longer dive and that uh, only women could do it because diving was seen as like a lowly uh, profession, not not mm -hmm. proper for men to do. So these men would... Um, Basically, they were became in charge of kind of the uh, family rituals and like religious aspects of Confucianism came very uh, became important for them. So that means that they had to make offerings in the in the home. These aren't shamanic offerings. These are more like this kind of, uh, you know, more uh, strict, uh, very much patriarchal type of uh, rituals, which changed over the years and, and mixed with shamanism on Jeju. But anyway, the men weren't allowed to dive anymore. And at that point, the women kind of took the power. And that went on for three or four hundred years. And what developed out of that is a situation where the couple, you would have a couple, they would have children. The man would kind of become like the house husband, take care of the children. You can still see this on Jeju Island. The older men are very gentle with children. It's often them taking care of the children while the women are working. And the women would uh, would dive and, you know, that and stay really healthy and robust from this activity, you know, this very mm. physical activity and very independent and they could make a lot of money. And the men would kind of uh, get pushed out of the families eventually and they would seek a second wife. But often the the first wife would be cool with it. She would, uh, you know, there were fights and stuff like that, arguments, uh, broken families did happen. But there were also a lot of cases where the younger second wife would come to the family and work with the first wife or the the older wife would lend her money or, you know, there's a lot of cohesion. A lot of my uh, I, I have friends who grew up with their grandmother who's not actually their grandmother by blood, you know, who grew up in the house of the second wife or third wife right. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not really an Amazonian kind of uh, uh, situation, but it but, you know, it, it it's caused for uh, this place to have a unique culture where the women are very much uh, outspoken compared to mainland Korea, where the women are supposed to be subservient and quiet. Right. And right. all that's changing now, of course. But yeah. 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 Um, so run through your, give a, before we wrap this up, give, give a plug to your various projects. You've got uh, films, you've got books, you like, where can people find all this stuff? Yeah. So my website is called, uh, paganswear.com. 
all together as one word, Pagans We Are. And uh, that's kind of uh, reflecting my newest project, which is going to be kind of a deep dive into uh, how shamanism here in Jeju is connected to, you know, shamanism in Europe mm. uh, before Christianity, before the onset of Christianity, the Celts and all that type of thing. So that uh, I'm going to try to do that properly. I'm going to look for a publisher, an agent, and all that type of stuff. And uh, I've I've been uh, that's what I've been doing all the Skype interviews about, kind of traveling without moving type of thing. And then um, yeah, the two books that I've done so far is a photography book on Jeju shamanism, which is available on PaginsWeAre.com. And then my new book, it's an ebook at the moment. There's not a physical book yet, but that's called Jeju Islands Heino, a user's manual. Or if you look on Amazon for Jeju women divers or woman free divers, you can find it there. And I think the, you know, it's a book, it has four or five essays and then about 12 interviews with uh, women from three ages. It has, uh, there's even like uh, women who, who quit, di- you know, they gave, they didn't want to dive. So they didn't become divers, even though they're from the lineage and they went to Seoul to, to try to become a K-pop star. There's a uh, feminist journalist. Like, so I did three generations. So there's interviews with younger women too, that are, it's interesting to get their perspective, but yeah, some of the stuff, I think that people will have their uh, minds blown a bit by the work that the women are doing. So, mm. you know, uh, but anyway, do a Google search, like uh, look up Women Divers Jeju Island and you'll you'll start to see what it's all about. Good. And the, the films are available on your website as well. Your TEDx yeah. presentation and your other stuff. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. There's a film cool. on Jeju shamanism on there. It's called Spirits. So you can find it through my website. Great. Great. All right, man. Well, this is important work you're doing. I, I it's you know, it's it's sort of. um I don't know. I was I was talking to someone the other day, and, and uh, we were talking about how we're in this unique historical moment where some of the most important work that's being done is preserving what's being lost, you know. And it's it's sad, and it's hard, and it, it's tragic in some ways, but it's so fucking important. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know. And and uh, I think that when I started doing this work, I realized that I was being pigeonholed into like someone who's trying to preserve something. Like I thought about that a bit, but. The way I feel about it is not really like that because everything I see this as an opportunity to learn about, you know, for example, the way that narrative functions in our lives for healing. I, right. On Jeju Island, I can see how that took place a thousand years ago still and where that that narrative healing process comes out of shamanism and out of these uh, rituals. I can see what myths, how myths functioned in people's lives a thousand years ago by going to a village down the street from my house and talking to the old people. And I, I see every day how we still kind of do the same thing. Although sometimes it's at, it's, it's not up to par, up to the quality level of what these older people had. And if Hmm. you, if you see how myth functions within a village like that and functions within people's spiritual lives, you can under you can be a little bit more forgiving of religion too. You know, mm. uh, I grew up kind of uh, disparaging Christians. You know, in the South, like growing up in the South and this ridiculous tradition and this type of thing. But uh, as time go- has gone by, I can kind of see the roots of where that type of uh, you know yeah. storytelling uh, came from. 
All right, so we're back. We we had another technical glitch. I, you were you were just saying that 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 your uh, sort of familiarity with the mythology uh, and the presence of myth in people's daily lives gave you more compassionate view on religion on Christianity. Yeah, sure. I th- I think that uh, we have. Uh you know, we have fallen from some type of state of grace that we were in where myth play, played a very clear role, an important role in people's lives. And I think that it still does play an important role in people's lives, but it's fragmented now because of mm. modernity. And we're grasping for myths every day and we fail every day to tell ourselves good myths, like spiritually good myths that uplift us. Maybe, maybe that's good that we're turning to psychedelics now to kind of fill in that space, you know. Um, but, yeah, I was just saying that being on Jeju, I'm able to see kind of a more primordial uh, version of how those myths worked in a village. Um, I'll Just before we leave, I'll tell you this. Uh, each village on Jeju Island has a shrine tree where they believe that the gods reside. And each one of those gods has a myth that tree is considered kind of the center of the world, the center of the village. And that myth is the myth that anchors all of the people's worldview in that village to one area, to a physical place on the landscape. But it's also like the the epic journey of the god or goddess who is the original founder of their village. So that that story and all of the secondary stories of all the healings that happened at the shrine and uh, all of people's personal prayers that they've gone to the tree and put into the tree and given to the God and the blessings that they've got back, their hardships, the village's history, it's all, it's all recorded right there in the shrine. And the shaman memorizes that lore and, and repeats it to the people and makes sure that the people remember it. And they add to it year by year, decade by decade. They add new, new stories and new myths. So it's mm. it's it's amazing, man. It's like the uh, song lines in Australia, something like yeah. that. I mean, it's yeah. this this is a holy landscape, and through the process of investigating this, I I have attached myself to the landscape. So this is no longer just a tourist island. I think about all the different areas of the island, which myth is there, you know, which god is in that village. Ah, then when I think of those gods in that village, kind of like a memory palace, I can remember over 10 years, all of the villages I went to, who told me what at at each village and what myths are attached to each shrine. So I have, I kind of have taught myself song lines in a way, like in Mm. a different thing, but a similar type of uh, uh, process. It reminds me of like the concept of the memory palace and all that, you know? So yeah, it's, it's this really fascinating thing that still exists in tiny little pockets throughout the world, you know? And, yeah. and I'm sure in Africa and South America, these things are, are, are much stronger. But these little pockets that are like this in Europe and Asia that still remain, that's that's what I'm interested in right now. It's fascinating. Um, listen, good luck on your your work and your uh, if you decide to pursue a Ph.D., if I can be of any service. Uh, I don't know what a recommendation from me would be worth in a legitimate graduate school, but if there's any, <laughs> who wants there's a legitimate graduate do. school? Come on, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not me. I'll take a uh, recommendation any day. So. Yeah, all right. <laughs> hey, thank you, Joey. This has been uh, really illuminating, interesting for me. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, mom. Uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have. 
lots and lots of t-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies. Or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. to the ground. 